Would you turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 119, 113 through 128. And this is the next edition of this series uh, that we're doing in Psalm 119. When Sean first started this a couple uh, weeks ago or a month or two ago, and started talking about the Hebrew letter divisions. I just had PTSD thinking back to my Hebrew class. And I, I remember the very first day of my Hebrew class and I took my Hebrew Old Testament and uh, got it all aligned with what was on the, the um, uh, overhead projector. And I wrote at the very top margin, this side up, because it was just very, very confusing and perplexing to me and just trying to understand what are consonants and what are vowel points. And, uh, and so I just want you to know, I just broke out into a sweat. You know, I got a B in the class and that was just absolutely the grace of God. <laughs> All right, dear friends, let me read for you this magnificent piece of scripture. As we think about this portion of scripture, it really aligns itself very beautifully with Psalm uh, 1 and Psalm 23. So this is Psalm 119, verses 113 through 128. 113. I hate the double-minded. I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. Verse 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Verse 121, I have done what is right just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good and let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long to see, uh, excuse me, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know of your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all of your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Now this is a, a beautiful portion of scripture as I said just a moment ago it's just indicative of Psalm chapter 1 and, uh, and, Psalm, 1, and Psalm 23. 
And as I've been meditating upon this passage of Scripture this week, and Sally and I have been talking about it um, over the course of the last several days, um, she has reminded me of a book that she's actually going through with Sarah, that why did God give us the Psalms? God gave, us, gave the Psalms to us that we would give the Psalms back to Him. McShane, Robert Murray McShane said this, Turn the Bible to your prayer book. This is the best way of really knowing what the passage means. And it's the best way of what it means to learn how to pray. But I love this quote the best from the book. Basically what you're doing is you're taking the words that have originated in the heart and mind of God and you're now going to recirculate these very words through your own heart and mind into the depths of your own soul as you actually pray these words back to God. Dear friends, I, I want to encourage us tonight as we dig into this passage to understand fundamentally what the Lord has for us. My first challenge to you, because after we probably all suffer from the same disease, what should we be praying for? It seems like our prayers are ever so rote. We're always praying for the same things. Take your Bible and pray the thoughts of God back to Him. And I promise you that as you do, we will, rather, as we do, we will have a better understanding of what the Lord has for us in this passage. And secondly, we will have um, a better understanding of what prayer is in this life. This is a psalm about what it means to be in relationship with the living God. Do you remember the name John Paul uh, Satara. He was a French philosopher. He was a writer. He was an existentialist. And he died in 1980. And, uh, and he writes concerning the, the psychological origin of his atheism. And he says this, I walked into a French cafe one afternoon and I sat down and I ordered for myself a glass of red wine. And as, I, as the glass of wine came to me, I was looking around the restaurant and I noticed a man who simply stared at me. And he had a cold, he had, he, he had it with a, excuse me, he stared at me with a cold, compassionless stare. And it was almost as if he was looking deep into my soul and he was, as he looked deep into my soul, he was stripping away anything that I had of value and dignity. He pierced me to the core. And John Paul says this, as I stared at that man staring at me, this was his conclusion. That is what God is like. God stares deeply into our souls um, stripping away anything of value and anything of dignity. And I would contend that there are, are individuals in the room tonight that you hold the same position that John Paul did. You see God as cold and distant and judgmental. You see God endeavoring to lay his legalism upon you when in essence, if we really understand this passage of what the Lord 
has for us this evening. It is truly just the opposite. And so I want to challenge you tonight. I want to challenge you tonight to gospel renewal. I want to challenge you tonight to renewal of of the, the extent to which the Father loves us. And he has pledged himself to us that he would rescue us, not only from ourselves, but he would actually rescue us from, um, from our sin as well. So in light of this truth, let's dig in and let's see what the Lord has for us. Notice what he says. He says, I hate the double-minded. God hates duplicity. He, you know, he stands upon principle. He is a God who stands upon his ultimate promises. And we know, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that God cannot lie and he has given to us his promises. And what are these promises? These are his promises made in an environment of sovereignty based upon his wisdom, informed by his holiness, in which he has said he will do these things for us. And beloved, we should take God at his word. And we should not be double-minded. We should not be people of duplicity. Do you remember Pilgrim's Progress, Pliable? Pliable was a neighbor of Christian, and Christian's taken off to the celestial city, and Pliable kind of gets in trouble with Christian, and all of a sudden he falls into the slew of despair, and he's, he's listening to Christian, but he's listening to the other voices, and ultimately he goes back to the city of destruction. And when he goes back to the city of destruction, what do the people do? They scorn him and they make fun of him. In this life, if you are pliable, you will never have peace. Never. Your life will be a life of ongoing worry. And your ongoing worry will breed real discouragement, despair, and a cynicism that, is, that really fundamentally cuts against the gospel. And so I would ask you this evening, do you find yourself, because we are all in one sense pliable, right? You know, each and every one of the characters in Pilgrim's Progress, if you, if you read it ten times, you think, okay, I'm all of them. To what degree are you pliable? To what degree are you listening to the winds of a cultural influence? And, and you're just trying to decide the right way to go. Remember um, uh, John Paul, he was an existentialist. In other words, he only valued the subjective and never the objective. He only valued what he thought was in here. And he was allowing his heart to govern his road of travel. God hates the double-minded. But then secondly, he says, but I love your law. And I want you to see why he says that. He says this in verse 113b, I love your law. Why is that? Look in verse 114. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Look in verse 118. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame uh, in my hope. And then look in verse 123. My eyes long for your salvation for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Here, here is the situation with the psalmist. 
He's a man that is walking by faith and he knows that God is sovereign, that the gospel works, and that his, as he walks by faith with eyes that are open and enlightened by the wisdom of Scripture, he knows that God is ever, ever with him. Remember I said just a moment ago, this psalm is indicative of Psalm 1. Listen to this Psalm 1 again. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, he says, he starts off and he says, this man turns a deaf ear to the ways and means of this world. That's what Psalm 119, what 13 is talking about. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates day and night. And he's like the tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in whatsoever he does, he prospers. Dear friends, we're to turn a deaf ear to the ways and means of this world. And we're to turn a listening ear to the ways and means of God. And as we do, we become like a tree firmly planted, um, yielding its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatsoever we do, we prosper because we are people that delight in the law of God. Because we have recognized its fruitfulness in our lives. Remember what I read a moment ago? What is the fruitfulness of the law? You are my hiding place and you are my shield. What does it mean that you are my hiding place? It's, it's the concept of protection. Sal and I just got back from England and, you know, they use some funny little words. And I was jumping in the back of a car one night and, 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 and there was a, one of the guys that I was with was going to jump in the back car with me, back of the car with me, and he said, you jump in the back of the car, and I will jump in the back of the car, and we'll cuddle. And I went, no, we won't. <laughs> and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. That means sit next to. And I went, well, we can do that. <laughs> but you're not cuddling with me. You see, this word hiding place, what does that mean? Ready? It means to be held by a father that has known you before time began and he has loved you and he cherishes you and he has cuddling you in his arms. We are hidden in his arms. He protects us. Look at this word shield. He said, not only are you my hiding place, not only are you my cuddling place, but you are my shield. I remember being on active duty and being um, introduced to Kevlar for the first time and I'm beginning to understand how we went from iron plates to ceramic plates and how this Kevlar would ultimately protect a soldier in the heat of battle. And I thought, what an amazing gift that this is for, for the modern-day soldier. This Kevlar is a shield. And don't we have a reality in Ephesians chapter 6? that we're to stand against the fiery darts of the evil one. Why do we need a shield? Because the fiery darts of the evil one are very real. And they're always coming at us. 
And the, and the psalmist says, Lord, I love your word. I, you are my hiding place. You are my shield. And notice the next line. I hope in your word. He, he is experiencing this. This is not theory. This is not an idea. He sees God for who he is. And he is embracing this reality of who God is because he wants to walk in the fatherhood of God, not in the narcissism of self. Verse 119. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. And this word uphold me, uphold me means to sustain me. He says, according to your promise, according to what you have already said, according to your character, according to your integrity, now uphold me, guard me, guide me, protect me. Because what does he want? He wants to live. It's a life that is qualitative and quantitative. Quantitative and qualitative, there's a quality of life, but there's also a quantity of life. And both of these are true for us as believers. I'm not preaching prosperity gospel, but I think I'm preaching the gospel that God will uphold us and protect us all the days of our lives. Notice what he says, uphold me that I may be safe. Remember he said, I walk according to your promise that I might live. Um, Uphold me that I will be safe. For I have regarded your statutes continually. The law of the Lord and his statutes are something that is ever so dear and ever so sweet to him. And as we long for physical food two to three times a day, we should be longing for spiritual food all day long because it is His spiritual food that is our literally our strength and our sustenance. When everything is stripped away and we have nothing but Him, we begin to recognize anew and afresh that He is the only one that we need. Dear friends, is is this your approach to who God is? Do you see God theoretically? Do you see God pragmatically? Um, Do you you try to, to, to design the God of your choice so that he can be your servant and you you rather have the God of your imaginations than the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament? I, I, I don't want the God of my own imaginations. My imaginations will destroy me. I need the God of truth. I need the God of wisdom. I need the God of holiness. I need the God of righteousness. I need the God of the gospel. I need the God of the Bible. And the same is true for each and every one of us in this room tonight. Verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, for I am afraid of your righteous judgments. 
You know, this whole section, I should have said at the top of the study, this whole section, 113 to 120, the, the outline would be knowing God. But he says this, My flesh trembles for fear of you, for I am afraid of your righteous judgments. Let me read this to you. Verse 120 ties the fear of God closely to the awe of his word. Beloved, we don't worship the book, but we do worship the God of the book. And when, when we understand what verse 20 is saying, it ties the fear of, of God closely to the awe of his word. There is an awe before the word, the word itself. As we read the word and we understand its grandeur, its coherence, and its wisdom, what is the fruit of that for us? It leads us uh, directly into having and understanding the fear of God. Becky Pippert said the fear of God is supreme respect. Tim Keller put it this way, it's the deep, trembling joy and wonder that increases as you relate to him. You realize we're actually called to relate to him. We're actually called to be in relationship with him. And as we are in relationship with him, the fear of God is the deep, trembling joy and wonder that increases as we relate to him, not as we imagine him to be, but as he truly is. Keller again. What God do you want? Do you want the God of your own imaginations? Or do you want the God who is described in the Bible? The Bible is the primary means by which God presents himself to us in such a way that we can know him and remain in him and actually continue to have a full relationship with him you see that's psalm 119 that's what we have all been preaching on what sean started on what does it mean to have this full robust relationship with the living god but notice verse 121 i have done what is just and right do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good and let the insolent, let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your, your salvation and for the, the fulfillment of your righteous presence. Again, what an amazing statement for he says, do not lead me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. And I started thinking this past week, what is this pledge of good that he is offering to us? You remember the covenant with Noah? Genesis 9. The promise of delayed judgment. You remember the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12 and 15, 
that we would be as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. Do you realize if you're a believer tonight, you're part of that promise? Do you remember the covenant with Moses in Exodus 23? This was the covenant concerning the law. Do you remember the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7? There's going to be a king and kingdom. And do you remember the covenant that was made in Jeremiah 31, 33, where he says, I will put my law upon their hearts and upon their minds. And you remember the promise of, of Matthew 1, 21. This is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. You will call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. And you remember that remarkable verse in Romans 8 that we talk about all the time in this church because it's one of the pivotal verses of this of, that, that we have for um, our understanding of the Reformed faith. We know that all things work together to good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And you remember just two verses down where, where Paul says, did He not give us all things? He who gave His own Son to us, Will he not also give us all things? Beloved, listen. This is the covenantal pledge that is mentioned in Psalm 119, verses, verse 122. This is that covenantal pledge where he says, I will always be there for you. Always. I will always come through for you always it may not seem like that in the moment but in the end it's always true you see the psalmist in this verse commits himself to the one who he knows is holy just and worthy have you committed yourself tonight to the one who is holy, just, and worthy. And as we think about this, and as we started at the top of the psalm by saying the Lord hates the double-minded, we don't want to be duplicitous. Of course, we know that we are, but we want to struggle against that because we want to love the law. Are we a people that truly long for holiness? And are we a people that truly long for godliness? Listen to what one of my commentaries said this week. Godliness is the response of faith to the promises of God by which the godly act in accordance with gospel truth because we not only love the giver of the gospel truth, we love the gospel truth itself. We, we long to be righteous and we long to be just. You see, that's godliness. Do we do this perfectly? Of course not. But can we do this powerfully through the means of the Holy Spirit, the power of grace? A deep, profound understanding of what Jesus has done for us? yes. Because that is the pledge that he has made to us. It was 10 o'clock Friday morning. I was getting on a plane 
going to Orlando for a meeting, board meeting with Third Mill. And, um, and I was on the plane with the rest of humanity going to Disney World. And every child had Mickey Mouse ears. And there was the cutest little boy, I mean, Dennis the Menace, white hair, bowl cut, um, right behind me with a little bit of a Yankee accent. And, and, and the pilot had just bestowed upon him a set of wings. And so he, I'm still laughing about it. So he's, he's, he's going down the aisle and he's, he's just talking to everybody who's on this side or that side. He goes, hey guys, hey guys, look at my wings, look at my wings. Hey guys, hey guys, look at my wings. Look at my, I mean, he, and unfortunately, he, he had the last seat with his mom you know, exit 90, I'm not exit, row 94 in the back of the aircraft. But he was so excited about what had been bestowed upon him and he wanted to show those wings to everybody. They're plastic wings. You can buy them at the dollar store for less than a dollar. Beloved, do we know what God has bestowed upon us? Second Corinthians he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, the great exchange. Jesus takes upon himself our sin. He doesn't become sin, but he takes upon our sin. When we understand this, we understand imputation and justification. And what do we get in exchange? We get the righteousness of God in our life. Um, Margaret, right now, sorry, you're just sitting in my view. Margaret, right now, you have, as a godly woman, the righteousness of God in your life. And what that means is that you have the moral integrity of Christ in your life right now. And there's, amen. And there's nothing that you can do to increase it. And I remember Ford Williams, Daddy Ford, preaching from the pulpit, a funeral, uh, a funeral just when he came on staff. And, and Daddy Ford said this, is there a greater gift that you could ever receive this side of Revelation 1? That we would have the, the moral integrity of Christ in our life because it's on the basis of the moral integrity of Christ in our life that we actually go to heaven. And when we realize that we already have it, it frees us from legalism. And when we recognize that we already have it, it motivates us to holiness. And if you say, well, I already have it, so let's, let, let's, let, let's sin abound, or let grace abound, let me go sin, that means you don't understand what it is at all. You're using God for the gifts that you think that He has given you, and you're not living in light of love and thankfulness. The psalmist continues, and he says this, my eyes long for your salvation, for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. This is a passage dealing with gospel renewal. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know of your testimonies. This is a prayer that the psalmist is praying. 
Notice what he says in verse 26. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. And now in conclusion, 127 and 128. Therefore, I love your commandments. Above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all of your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. This psalmist is saying this, I declare your precepts to be right. I love your way. I love your truth. I love your path. I long for your light. And then it says this in 127, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Sal and I were in in England when the queen died. We were coming home the day after the funeral on Tuesday. And all of, (laughs) she was so beloved. And David Meredith told me, he said, she is definitely a believer. He said, it's it's unquestionable that she's with Jesus at this moment. And so we were with one of our church planters in central London with Kruger de Kock and his wife Stephanie and their four children. Uh, everything was closed, so we just hung out with them and actually grilled in the backyard. And we watched everything on TV. And I don't know if you remember um, that scene where her coffin was lowered. And, and as the coffin was being lowered, they took off her crown, they took off the scepter, and they took off the globe. And that was at her request. The crown stood for her coronation and her rule and her authority, or her rule. The scepter stood for her authority. The globe represented her sphere of influence. And here's what Queen Elizabeth said. I want to step into heaven not as a queen, but as a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. I want to step into heaven, not as a queen, but as a daughter that belongs to a king. And that was said on the BBC. What an amazing understanding that she had in light of her relationship with the Lord. And you see, that's why this passage is so pertinent because I believe, not trying to exalt her, but you think about all of her wealth and all of the crown jewels and all that she had at her disposal and what was the queen's cry in this life? I love your commandments. I love them more than above gold. Yea, I love them more than much fine gold. In closing, we went to Blenheim Palace, which is where Churchill was raised, because I wanted to dig in and understand some more things about Churchill. And and at the end of the day, when everything was finished, uh, I asked our guide, I said, where is um, Churchill buried? 
And he said, if you'll go out the back gate and take a right and just go a couple of hundred yards, you'll see a very small church, and he's buried behind the church. And, excuse me, <laughs> and he's buried behind the church. And so we went, and it was just startling to see um, this nondescript grave of such a very important person. When he died, his daughter wrote him a thank you note and put it on top of the casket underneath the Union Jack. And this is the note that she wrote to him. And this is the note that we should all write to our Father in heaven. Listen to what she said. I wish I could express more adequately my love and my gratitude for you. But please believe me when I say that my love and my gratitude for you is very real and it's very deep. And in addition to all the feelings that I have for you as a loving and generous father, there is one thing that I owe you. And dad, it's the one thing that every citizen in the UK owes you. And then she said this, you gave to us liberty. Do you realize that's what the Father has given to us? Liberty. Not liberty to sin. Liberty unto likeness. Not liberty to depravity, but liberty unto holiness liberty unto righteousness, liberty unto eternity. This is the gift that the Father has given to us. And as Mary wrote this note to her dad, would we offer a prayer of thanks to our Father in heaven that has given us this ultimate gracious gift that we should be celebrating, really, all the days of our lives. Father, we come to you and once again, um, as the psalmist asks you to act, we ask you to act in our lives. May we know you for who you are. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. May we readily confess our sins unto you and may we know of your power and your strength in our lives. In your son's name we pray, amen.